chapter 11 of the Gospel of John. And um, Pastor Jared told us last week that Jesus said he is the good shepherd. John recorded it in chapter 10, verse 11. said, the good shepherd gives his life <clears throat> for the sheep. And as we move into chapter 11 of John's Gospel, the theme is all about life and death. Jesus is led by the Father to raise his close, intimate friend Lazarus from the dead. And many Bible teachers believe that Lazarus and this chapter represents the salvation of every lost sinner. And there are seven ways that John's going to point out and reveal this idea to us. As we get to them, I'll point them out and we'll look closer at each one. When we talk about life and death, the Bible teaches us that death and sin go hand in hand. Adam and Eve were created in innocence by God to love Him and to have fellowship with Him. And my first point that's written inside your bullet, and you might want to pull that out, it's these points, I, I call them uh, points to think about. God, who is love, created mankind with the ability to love. But there's one overriding characteristic that we must have in order to experience love. And that's the attribute of choice. Without choice, love is just infatuation. Without choice, it's a, a mindless, parroted reply. Uh, without choice, and I'm going to date myself, it's simply like a programmed old chatty Kathy doll. Or maybe in today's world, a squeeze toy that spills out its mechanical recording, promising love to the squeezer. You all know the story. There was a tree placed in the garden to give Adam and Eve a choice. But with that choice came either obedience or sin and death. In fact, we see in Genesis 2, verse 26, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, <clears throat> you shall surely die. This death promised by God was both physical and spiritual. Now, we're not told how long Adam and Eve lived in their innocence. But the moment the poisoned fruit was eaten, Eve's and then Adam's body began to die. And as physical death ends life and separates people, so spiritual death is a separation between God and people. This was evident when Adam and Eve hid from God as they uh, the, the God they had fellowshiped with the day before, or perhaps even that morning, it says, in the cool of the day. Death had invaded the planet. And that's where we find ourselves this morning with the death of Lazarus. <coughs> Verses 1 through 16. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. 
Now John identifies Mary with an event that he hasn't even written yet, but he will in the next chapter. He'll recount her extravagant act of worship. His point here is that this is the Mary. Verse 3, Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now these are simple, humble folk, and they make no request or demand of Jesus. They tell him the problem, and then they let him decide what to do. We'll find in verse 6 that Jesus didn't go immediately. We'll also see in verse 5 that his delay was not from lack of love. Neither was it from fear of the Jews. Jesus waited till the right moment in the Father's plan. Every movement he made was totally under God's direction. When Jesus heard that, verse 4, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now Jesus is saying in verse 4 that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, that is, in permanent death. Instead, the Father, as well as the Son, will be glorified by this incident. Now this brings me to the second point in our bulletin that I want you to think about. This is true for us today. In all of our circumstances, we need to look beyond the tears, the sorrows, and the trials of life and see that God has a purpose in everything he allows to happen. You see, Jesus doesn't cause suffering, but he uses tragedies to showcase his glory. He also has lessons to teach the people that he loves. Faith doesn't get stretched without tension. Character isn't forged except through struggle. And courage doesn't grow apart from being challenged. And that's why Jesus waits. Verse 7. Then after this he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. Now the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Now his disciples knew that going to Judea would be dangerous. These Jews had already threatened Jesus' life. In chapter 10, verse 31, we read, Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. So his disciples are trying to prevent him from going. The disciples are frightened. And now Jesus wants to return and take them with him into this danger zone. Verse 9. Jesus answered, There are not... Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. Now these words take a careful, discerning listener, but he's not talking in riddles. He has already declared that he is the light of this world. And as long as he followed God's plan walked in the light himself, no harm would come till the appointed time. The Father 
will protect him. I love it. Verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Sleep and rest bring healing to the sick. The, the disciples, they're getting confused, and they're thinking, now Jesus, what's the big problem? We can send a get well card and stay right here where it's safe. Well, Jesus, he had used this expression of sleep once before. Remember when he entered Jairus' house and he told the mourners, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. The Jews laughed. The girl had no pulse. Her body was cold and blue. Her eyes had rolled back in her head, and they're thinking, what do you mean she's just sleeping? Well, Jesus wasn't debating the autopsy. He was participating, going to participate in a miracle. He knew the girl's condition was temporary. You see, the body of a believer sleeps in the grave, but the spirit goes to be with Christ. For the believer to die is to immediately live in heaven with God. Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul even put it this way, For me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Well, this goes to point three in our bulletin. The body is put to sleep, to be awakened by our Lord. He's the only one who has the alarm clock. He's the only one who can raise the dead. One day, he will come and we shall awaken in our new bodies. When you look through the New Testament since the coming of Christ, the death of a believer is regularly called asleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. Now this brings us to the first way that Lazarus represents the salvation of every lost sinner. The fact that he was dead. The unsaved, before you came to Christ, you were not just sick or ailing spiritually. You were spiritually dead. We're told this in Ephesians chapter 2. When a person is physically dead, they don't respond to such things as food, temperature, or pain. And when a person is spiritually dead, he doesn't respond to spiritual truth. Jesus continues speaking in verse 15. He says, And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. This is the same Thomas, later nicknamed Doubting Thomas, because of the incident in the upper room. In chapter 20, now Thomas may lack in his faith, but he steps up here as a bold member of the group. 
Now, as we come to verse 17, we begin the next section, verses 17 through 27, where Jesus is going to tell Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. So when Jesus came, he found that he, Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about four miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning her brother. Now, some of these mourners were in league with the Pharisees. They're going to report back to them in Jerusalem. We'll see that later. Then Martha, verse 20 says, As soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary was still sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha, now she's the type A personality. Can you uh, uh, understand her a little bit? She went to meet Jesus while Mary, the more contemplative, emotional sister, she waits in the house. Well, Jesus and the disciples, disciples, they arrive in Bethany. Mary's still in the house, sitting. I think she's probably praying and meditating on the Old Testament scriptures that speak of the death and eternal state of her dead brother. Martha, she can't sit still. She meets Jesus out by, at the edge of town. And she continues here in verse 22. She says, But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, Martha's greeting is a confession of faith. She really believed that Jesus could have healed her brother if he had been there. But she's accusing him of a missed opportunity. And this is the point of number four in our, in our bulletin I want you to think about. Martha had a strong faith. She had no doubt if Jesus had come in time, he could have saved her brother's life. But he delayed. Martha is about to learn that Jesus never misses an opportunity. He just has his own timetable. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Well, Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now, although Mary knew, or Martha knew from the Old Testament that there would be a resurrection from the dead, she wasn't sure that Jesus could help her right now. Martha had no doubt uh, here of she had no thought here of an immediate resuscitation. Lazarus was dead. But she did believe in the final resurrection at the last day. As a child, she paid close attention during her bat mitzvah classes. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, don't you all love this verse? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus reaffirms that simple faith and faith alone is required for salvation. Whoever lives and believes in Jesus will never die because Jesus has already died in his place. That person 
will never be separated from God. As a young person, I can still remember when it was made clear to me that believing in Jesus didn't just give me life, even abundant life, but it gave me eternal life. I remember thinking for the first time, right now, at this moment, I am living forever. I'm enjoying eternal life. I don't have to wait until I die. Jesus is asking Martha if she really believes. Does she believe enough to trust the power and purposes of Jesus right now? Well, we come to point five in the bulletin. It's a question I want you to ask yourself. Like Martha, you may believe in the resurrection one day, yet future. But right now, do you believe Jesus will resurrect a dead joy or a dead dream or even a dead marriage? You believe that Jesus created heavens and earth, but what about his creative power in the hopeless situation you find yourself in right now? Verse 27, she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Martha gave a great confession of faith in Christ. She agreed with Jesus' explanation about eternal life to those who believe in Him. She says, Yes, Lord, that's what I believe. Then she confesses three things about Jesus. First, He is the Christ, the promised Messiah. Then He is the Son of God, not just a great teacher or prophet. Martha even goes a step further than Peter's famous confession of faith in Matthew chapter 16, where it says, Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, Martha also recognized that Jesus is the coming one. She said he was the one who came into the world. This statement was part of a song sung by the crowds at the triumphal entry as Jesus comes riding on a donkey entering into Jerusalem in the next chapter. Uh, let me read one verse, John 12:13. The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. This song, or song is taken from Psalm chapter 8, 118. This is one of the songs usually sung by the Passover pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. These words are ascribed to Jesus as a messianic, messianic title as Lord and King of Israel. Martha believed that Jesus is the Messiah who came to do God's will. But as yet, she has no hint of the coming miracle regarding her brother. In these next verses, we're going to see the sorrow and grief that Adam's sin caused the Creator. Verses 
28 through 37, we see this death, the last enemy of Jesus. 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come, and he's calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but he was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up and quickly and went out, they followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus, where Jesus was, she saw him. She fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary's greeting is the exact same as her sister's in verse 21. She felt the tragedy would have been averted if Jesus had been present. Her faith was sincere, but it was limited. Most of us have figured this out already. Is this why Jesus will say later on, recorded in chapter 16 of John, that it was expedient, that it is better for him to go away, to exit the planet, to return to the Father? In his human body, <clears throat> Jesus couldn't be in two places at once. He had relinquished that ability by coming to earth as a babe and taking on the flesh of humanity. This incident with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus makes it obvious why this was expedient. As long as Jesus was here on earth in the flesh, he was limited geographically. If he were in your town, he couldn't be in my town. If Jesus had not gone away, he could not have sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. But now that the Holy Spirit has come, he is everywhere. He indwells every believer today. The Holy Spirit can be where I am. He can be where you are. <clears throat> and he can be <clears throat> on the other side of the world simultaneously. Jesus will tell this to the disciples in chapter 16, verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now this is really interesting to me. Most Bible scholars agree that the meaning of the word groaned used here by John means more than just weeping. It means a deep-seated anger. <clears throat> more than distressed, Jesus was mad. He's angry at what sin and death has brought to his creation. And he said in verse 34, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, isn't that a famous verse? Wasn't that the first one you memorized as a kid? So you could get whatever they were 
handing out. His weeping was over the tragic consequences of sin. It was over the pain and sorrow it brought to the loss of a loved one. Now the crowd interpreted these tears as an expression of love and frustration at not being here to to heal Lazarus. But here we're given a small glimpse of the sorrow and grief that the Lord has felt about sin since Adam and Eve sinned and the resulting sickness, pain, and death it has brought to his innocent creation. These consequences of sin upon the human race literally make Jesus angry. Verse 36, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Well, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Well, the Jews are missing the point here, aren't they? Jesus wept not because he loved Lazarus. He was not weeping for the dead. He wept for those who were living. Now this brings us to verses 38 through 44, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, "Uh, Lord, by this time there is a stench. In the King James it says, He stinketh, for he has been dead four days. Corruption and decay has begun. Now, most Bible scholars that do the math, they believe that by the time the messenger actually reached Jesus, Lazarus was already dead. You see, it takes one day for the the servant to travel to reach Jesus. The distance was about 15 to 20 miles. It took two days for Jesus to to wait until the timing was exactly right. And then one day to travel back with Jesus and the disciples. Four days. Martha says, he's been dead four days. Well, this brings us to the second way that Lazarus represents the salvation of every lost sinner. He was decayed. One of my favorite Bible teachers, Warren Wiersbe, He makes this idea clear when he says, there are three resurrections recorded in the Gospels, apart from that of our Lord Jesus. Christ raised a 12-year-old girl who had died in Luke chapter 8. A young man who he had been dead several hours in Luke 7. And an older man, Lazarus, who had been in the tomb four days here in John 11. So, Wiersbe says this, They present a picture of three different kinds of sinners. The little girl is the first one. Children are sinners, but open corruption has not yet set in. We call it their innocence. The young man. Young people are sinners whose outward corruption begins to show. And if you have teenagers, you know this. And number three, the older man. Adults are sinners whose definite outward corruption can be seen. So the point is, all three were dead, but one person can't be more dead than another. 
What Wiersbe is trying to tell us, the only difference lays in the degree of our decay. Is it not true of sinners today? An unsaved but morally religious person, maybe they're not as decayed as the unsaved murderer on death row, but they're still just as dead. So Martha said that he'd been buried for four days and already and his body would stink. It would be decaying. Now some people think this sounds crude, but death is crude. It's awful. And this is certainly going to require a miracle. Verse 40. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So Jesus reminds Martha of his earlier promise in verse 25. If she believed his word, that he is the resurrection and the life, and trusted him, God will be glorified. Verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. Now with the stone taken away, you can just feel the tension beginning to mount. What is Jesus going to do? Well, it tells us he begins to pray out loud. Verse 41, And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Well, Jesus is praying audibly to let the people know that what he's going to do is the will of the Father, so that the Father will get the glory. So he voices his prayer for the benefit of those who are watching. Now, when he had said these things, verse 43, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now, as early as the 5th century, Augustine, the great theologian, he realized right here, he, he said, if Jesus hadn't used Lazarus' name, all of the dead would have come out from the graves. Verse 44, and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And this is the third way that Lazarus represents the salvation of every lost sinner. He was raised and given life. Keep in mind that salvation is not a set of rules. It is life. And this life is in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my sixth point in the bulletin. When dead sinners hear the voice of the Son of God through the Word, and they believe, they are given eternal life. To reject that Word is to be dead forever. Lazarus' body was brought back to life. He was resurrected but not like the future resurrection Martha believed in. Glad to have you. She did believe in the final resurrection at the last day, where our bodies will be raised to live forever. Now, I waited because I really want you to hear this next part. This reminds me 
of my dad. After he had the triple bypass operation, he told the doctor that with everything that you replaced inside me, I expect that my heart's going to last another 80 years. And the doctor smiled at Dad and he said, Well, I'm sorry to tell you this, Charlie, but those were all used parts. You see, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but it was his old used body, and he's going to have to die again. This brings us to the last part of verse 44. And Lazarus' face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Notice that for Lazarus, life was restored to the old body. He came out still wrapped in the grave clothes. Well, this is my fourth way that Lazarus represents the salvation of every lost sinner. He needed to be loosed from his grave clothes. Lazarus is alive, but he's still bound. He has a new life, but still he's wearing grave clothes. And this is the predicament of every believer. We're resurrected spiritually. We're a recipient of new life. But the attitudes and our habits and our thought patterns of the past still remain. We're alive, but we're wearing grave clothes. So Jesus tells Lazarus' friends to help him with the grave clothes. Uh, Wait a minute. Now think with me. Didn't Jesus just raise a dead man from the grave? Why Why does he need the help of these people with the grave clothes? I mean, he could snap his finger. Or I've, I've seen it on TV. He could just twirl his finger and the, <clears throat> the ribbons would just unwrap themselves. But no. Jesus enlists the living, those who are spiritually alive, to loose Lazarus from the old clothes that restricted his new life. I think this is important for us to understand this morning. It's point seven in our bulletin. Today, it's our job. It's the church's job to help a new believer shake free from bondage. Our role is to help each other to see ourselves in Christ and shed our sinful habits and renew our mind. We need to help fellow believers swap grave clothes for grace clothes. Now, what are the old grave clothes that you're still wearing that keep you tripping and stumbling? Paul gives us a partial list in Colossians chapter 3. He says, put off all these. Take these off. Anger, malice, blasphemy, Filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Our grave clothes, they might be pride or pleasure or even things. Paul says, put off these garments. They belong to the old man. 
not who you are in Christ. We come to verses 45 through 57, the plot to kill Jesus. And why? Verse 45. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Mary did believed in him. This is the fifth way that Lazarus represents the salvation of every lost sinner. He was a witness to others. Lazarus caused quite a stir in that area. People saw him and believed in Christ. In fact, Lazarus was a walking miracle, just as every Christian ought to be today. Paul told us in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 46, But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. You can see here that the problem for these bloodhounds of hate was not a lack of evidence. These enemies said, He works many signs. They couldn't deny his miracles. You would think this crowning miracle would have turned these skeptics to Jesus. But it did not. So they continue in verse 48. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The Pharisee has used, they've used several strategies to destroy or scorn the impact of Jesus' ministry for the past three years. But just At about the same time these jealous Jews had discredited one miracle, Jesus works another. Damage control was getting more difficult. The Pharisees truly believed that if the people followed Jesus as their Messiah, it would result in a nationwide political movement. You see, they had no clue. They thought that a mass turning to Jesus would bring a political movement revolution. The outcome would be insurrection, forcing the Romans to crush any Jewish revolt. Look back in verse 48. That's why they say that the Roman governor, Pilate, would take away both our place, referring to their religious freedoms in the temple, and our nation, referring to their political freedoms. This would provide an occasion for Rome to pounce on them. These power brokers are moving from a basis of fear. And Jesus is upsetting the status quo. Verse 49. And one of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. You see, Caiaphas was living in constant fear of the Roman Empire. If Pilate were challenged too tenaciously, the whole nation could be destroyed by Rome. Well, Caiaphas' words were an accidental prophecy. John tells us this in verse 51. 
Now this he did not say by his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas' judgment was that this man must be sacrificed if the nation were to continue. He was a wicked man pronouncing a death sentence, but God used the high priest to actually prophesy our salvation. Verse 53, Then from that day on they plotted to put him to death. Therefore Jesus no longer walked openly with the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. This verse here is the beginning of the end. In times before, they had taken up stones in an angry reaction. Now they are openly planning to put Jesus to death. Verse 55. And the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple, saying, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast? Well, previously Jesus had attended the national festivals and publicly taught in the temple area. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So the command was, go up to the Passover feast and look for Jesus. Now chapter 11 is just just past the halfway mark in the Gospel of John. Does it surprise you to learn that this is the end of Jesus' public ministry, even though there's nine more chapters in John's Gospel? His public ministry began when John the Baptist marked him out as the Lamb of God in chapter 3. It concludes here in chapter 11, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I like this. This was written by someone John spends almost as much time on the last 48 hours before Jesus' death than he did on the first 32 years, 11 months, 3 weeks, and 5 days of his life. Now we're done with chapter 11, but I want to cover three more verses quickly. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. This brings us to the sixth way that Lazarus represents the salvation of every lost sinner. He he fellowshiped with Jesus. Verses 1 and 2. We see Lazarus sitting at the table with Jesus, feasting with him. But we're going to see later, if you can see in verses 10 and 11 right here in chapter 12, the chief priest plotted to put Jesus, to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and they believed in Jesus. And this is the seventh way that Lazarus represents us. He was persecuted. 
the Jews hated Lazarus because he convinced others of Christ's deity. This is our ninth and last point in the bulletin. Our testimony is going to bring disagreement, conflict, and misunderstanding from the world around us. This is seen clearly in many of our beliefs that we all hold dear. And I've mentioned two of them here. In the essential need for church and worship. And in the belief of absolute truth. But there's other ideas. Also in our belief in God's creative act recorded in Genesis. In the the biblical view of marriage. The view on sexual sins the biblical view on the sanctity of life. These aren't just areas of disagreement in in today's world. They're areas of conflict and struggle where the opposition is disputing our beliefs to the point of violence and physical battle. Tyler, come on up. My prayer today is that each of us not only demonstrates the faith that Mary and Martha had, but that we believe these words of Jesus and the testimony of our lives help open the eyes and hearts of our unsaved neighbors and family. But I want you to take just a moment and check about what you're wearing today. Put off those grave clothes. Put on your grace clothes, those clothes of love and patience and gentleness and kindness to one another. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the miracles that you've worked that demonstrate the miracles that you're working in our lives. Lord, strengthen our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to, please stand together and worship with Tyler as he sings. happy to see you here today. If uh, any of you would like to pray with us, we'd love to have you come up here. Uh, The elders, a couple of elders will come up with myself and we'd love to pray with you. Coach is in the back back there. Uh, You can catch him too and and pray with him. Uh, We we know that that God does miracles. And he can do that miracle that you and I need. So um, just as, as, we, as I let you go, and, um, remember to pray for, for Daryl and his family. His dad passed away this week. So we'll be thinking about them and praying for them as well. Thank you. Good to have you this morning. God bless you.